0: Well, like my, I said, my, my name is Nathan Schneider. Um, I grew up, uh, kind of bounced around uh, as a kid as, as my dad uh, worked for the Bureau of Land Management. One of the places that we lived was a little town in um, Southern California. It was called Needles, California. If you're familiar with it, uh, Needles is one of those places that you wish you would just get through It's about 120 in the summertime, and there's not much to do except to cool off in the Colorado River. But um, when I was five years old, we moved from Needles to the lush green hills of Northern Virginia. We moved to a town um, called Manassas, which is uh, about 40 miles or so outside of Washington D.C., where my dad was working at the time for BLM. And being that Manassas was the site of not just one but two major battles of the Civil War, I I grew um, a keen interest and a fascination with that war and, and just studying its history, the the battles, the, the people that fought in it. Um, it was just fascinating to me, and I carried it with me even now. Um, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that war and the battles fought, and uh, just one came to mind as uh, as I was preparing to preach this morning. And uh, that, that lesson, you know, kind of put broadly is... Uh, that if we're not careful, history is apt to repeat itself. It was uh, July 3rd of 1863, General Robert E. Lee, was the commanding general of the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, he initiated what would become probably the most famous um, attacks in the, the history of that war, facing a superior force which held a superior tactical position Lee sent his already battle-weary troops in an all-out assault on the center of the federal line. Saw it was massive, massive, Twelve to 15,000 men marched in a line across nearly a mile of open ground. From the opposite ridge line, Union artillery began to rain down solid shot explosive shells on the exposed troops. When they finally reached the Union lines... They were met by an enemy who was well concealed behind a wall of stone fencework. From their entrenchment, the federal troops were able to pour out volleys of musket fire into the oncoming infantry lines while Union batteries shot canister rounds, which were basically cannon-sized version of shotguns, just straight into the Union lines, just blasting holes. Even then, for a moment, there was a glimmer of hope that maybe maybe the assault would succeed. It is a fierce melee ensued. But then it passed, and what was left of uh, Lee's shattered troops retreated to the cover of the woods behind the Confederate line. And all told, the assault um, was a massive failure. It left half its participants dead or wounded and drew the bloodiest battle of the war to a decisive close. The Battle of Gettysburg has been called by historians the high-water mark of the Confederacy because Lee's defeat basically halted this momentum of victory after victory and it really was that turning point in the war that began a slow descent that would end 2 years later at Appomattox. But here's the thing is that it didn't necessarily have to be like that. Lee's infamous assault on the Union lines at Gettysburg really stands as one of the great ironies of military history. Because it was seven months earlier that General Ambrose Burnside, who was the commanding general of the Federal Army of the Potomac, crossed the Rappahannock River outside of Fredericksburg, Virginia. And on December 13th of 1862, he assaulted the Confederate forces who were well entrenched on the ridges outside of the town. The assault was doomed to fail <laughs> The southern forces had placed artillery in strong positions with overlapping fields of fire covering the entire area. In fact, Lieutenant Colonel Porter Alexander had told Longstreet, one of the corps commanders, General, we cover that ground now so well that we will comb it as with a fine-toothed comb. A chicken could not live on that field when we open on it. On top of that, the southern troops had taken up a position along a 600-yard stretch of of road that had been sunken by years of, of uh, wagon wheels. They really provided a perfect entrenchment from which to defend their position. So by the time the assault concluded a day later, Burnside had lost over 12,000 men. And it was General Robert E. Lee himself who said famously after that battle, Uh, Quote, it it is good that war is so terrible or we should grow too fond of it, unquote. Lee himself had witnessed the ill-fated federal assault. He had seen the the cost of crossing open ground covered by well-placed artillery to attack a well-entrenched line. And yet, seven months later, when circumstances were reversed, Lee repeated history. As Lee's shattered troops retreated back across the battlefields at Gettysburg, the Union soldiers broke into chant crying, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg. Too many mistakes in the present are a result of a failure to remember the past. It's the case in war, it's the case in politics and other affairs. But it's also the case in the church, in the Christian life. And this is really true on a number of levels. Um, Bruce Shelley has a book that's called um, Church History in Plain Language. And I'd recommend it You know, if you're ever a little bit uh, tentative about reading church history. It's a great book to, to just get acquainted with it. We might have a copy in the bookstore. I'm not sure if we do or if it was sold. But, but he says this in his prologue. He says, quote, many Christians today suffer from historical amnesia. The time between the apostles and their own day is one giant blank, unquote. One of the things that he says happens because of this historical amnesia is that Christians become very, um, very sensitive and, and, uh, and vulnerable to the seductive heresies that come around. New theology pops up sounds good they're completely ignorant of the fact that that thing had been clarified and dealt with a thousand years before nine times out of ten this is just my ballpark figure but I'd say nine times out of ten new quote-unquote doctrines that circulate around whether or not they're they're published by liberal academics or they're just popularized by the quote-unquote christian cults Nine times out of ten, there are nothing but old heresies put in new clothing. The eternal truths that form the foundation of the Christian faith, which were laid by the apostles, were then fleshed out over the centuries after the apostles. Whether or not we're talking about Athanasius and the deity of Christ or Augustine on the sinfulness of man... Luther on justification by faith. There's this long hallway of, of history for us to walk through and, and learn from and remember so that we don't fall for the same lies that have already been exposed and dealt with. So that's one aspect of why we need to look back is so that we don't fall for those kind of things. But there's also kind of a, a moral urgency to remember the past because let's be honest, Be honest with ourselves. How many times is it that we stumble into sin and it's the first time we've ever done that before and it's the first time we've ever seen those circumstances that led up to it? I would venture to guess it's not very often. We've trodden that path before. We've seen these things that all led up to that moment where we stumbled and we fell. We just didn't do anything about it the first time. We didn't look back and we didn't consider, how do I not have that happen again? We didn't learn from the past. We didn't ever look back. So it's a brand new year that lies before us. There's a potential for great growth. There's a potential for us to move forward in our Christian lives, to grow. But if we don't spend some time dwelling on the past behind us, what's already happened, the experiences that we've had, the, the, the failings that we've had, the, the failings that we've observed others who have stumbled and fallen. If, if we don't look back, we may find ourselves doing exactly what Lee did, and that's reliving history. So with that in mind, turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Did I just hear a collective groan? I, I, I love the Old Testament. That's where I got my, um, in my advanced studies in, in seminary. I just, it fascinated me, and so I spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. I'm teaching through Zachariah, so it's just on my heart. Um, I have the beard, so I'm already considered a rabbi by some. So it just makes sense for me to go to Zechariah, But I want to look at Zachariah chapter 1 and, and look at these first six verses that open up this entire book. And uh, just for the time we have this morning, explore this opening message that Zechariah gives to a people who are really, they're desperate for a fresh start. Zechariah began his prophetic ministry amidst a backdrop of geopolitical turbulence and really spiritual um, disillusionment. They Seventy years earlier... Israel had experienced the single greatest crisis in their entire history up to that point. 586 BC, the armies of Babylon led by Nebuchadnezzar came, besieged the city, broke its walls down, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, slaughtered most of the population and carted off the rest into exile. And that single event affected Israel in profound ways I mean for one it ended Israel's national identity I mean they were a people but they weren't a nation you can't be a nation without a land and they were out of their land it also ended their means of worshiping God without a temple without the central aspect of the way in which Israel was to maintain their covenant relationship with God they were out of options For 70 years, they lived in exile in a foreign land. Meanwhile, kingdoms rose and fell. In 539 BC, Cyrus the Persian conquered the Babylonian kingdom. The very next year, he issued a decree that Judah could return to the land and begin rebuilding its temple. 536 BC, just a few years after the decree, under the leadership of Zerubbabel and, and Joshua, the high priest, the foundation of the temple had been laid. Things were looking up. The, rest, the restoration seemed promising. And yet it wasn't long before resistance arose, first from the Samaritans in the land, and later from the Persian-appointed governor, Tatanai. And thus the temple sat unfinished for 17 years. You can only imagine what that did for Judah's spiritual outlook. All their hopes that came alive when they had first returned. They'd been quickened. They were just dashed by years and years of just stagnant waiting. They became complacent. They just kind of went about to their lives. Nothing's going to happen. They were disillusioned. In other words, they began to give up. They were convinced God did not want them to build this temple. And God did not have any kind of future for them. He was just done. And that's where they kind of sat for years and years. And so when, when we read in Zechariah, in the opening verse, verse 1, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, and just in that historical time frame, he's, he's not just giving you historical data. There's a sting to those words. Because usually when a prophet time stamps his message, he's he's usually going to orient him where he's at in history according to whatever the reign of the the Davidic king was at the time. But Zechariah doesn't do that. It's because he can't do that. There is no Davidic king who's reigning on the throne. In other words, Zechariah's opening words are this biting reminder. Israel is living in a very different age. The time of the Gentiles a time where Gentile kings and Gentile nations will have dominance. Israel no longer enjoys the supremacy and that they once had. Very different times for this nation. And nevertheless, despite the circumstances, God's still speaking. In the eighth month, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. God still cares. God still remembers his people. He still has a future for them, a glorious future that will culminate in the coming of a long-awaited Messiah who will bring them peace and righteousness in an everlasting kingdom. The whole book of Zechariah builds to this climactic statement in chapter 14, verse 9. It says, the Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day the Lord will be one and his name one. That is the the arrival point of the book of Zechariah. A glorious future that awaits Judah, that awaits God's people. Before they can get there, though, something has to change. There's a path that they must take. Zechariah makes it clear that in order to move forward on that past, they, have, they also have to look backwards. And that's the point of the passage that we're looking at. The thrust of this passage is as you move forward, keep looking backward. Don't forget the past. It's not something I would recommend doing while you drive your car, okay? Just eyes forward. But when it comes to, this, to the Christian life, you can't neglect the past or you will end up reliving it. Okay, so let's look at this passage. Starting in verse 2, we see our first point that Zechariah, interestingly enough, starts by looking at the path ahead, the path ahead, starting in verse 2. So the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So Zechariah begins with a reminder, a reminder. It's very simple, it's very subtle, but it's it's nonetheless direct. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. And that statement is this perfectly concise way of summarizing the entire 70-year Babylonian exile. It just summarizes it right there. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. In other words, he's saying your current situation started somewhere. It started with God's intense anger against the generation that came before you. And it's because of them that you're here today in the situation that faces you. But that being said, in verse 3, Zechariah tells him exactly what the path forward looks like. Look at verse 3. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, return to me. The path ahead for Judah is a return to God. It's a call to renew their loyalty, to reignite their love, to resume their responsibilities. That's what's packed into that one little word, to return fact is that they, they needed to return implies something these people had turned away from God they had turned their back on him they had forsaken their loyalty they had in the context of, of their covenant relationship with God they had committed treason against God they had turned away from him so now is the call to come back I mean oh, it, it, everything seemed well on the outside They were back in the land. They had returned. They had begun to rebuild the temple. So on the outside, everything seemed to look like things were turning around, but there still needed to be a spiritual return. A physical return was not enough. And so the call is, return to me, he says. This isn't just a a call to cold Automatic obedience. That's not what this call is. It's it's a path that far too often that we take when we sin. When we sin, and, and our instant response in in repentance is to turn and therefore kind of fall into kind of performance mode. Okay, I, I got to do better this time. I got to do better. And we repent and then we return to religion. This list of rules, these obligations, we got to perform. We perform out of guilt. I just got to do better thinking that that is when we've somehow arrived and we've, we've hit the point. That's not the point at all. Obedience isn't the point. God is the point. Which is why Zechariah says not just to return, but look at what it says. Return to who? Return to me. It's a relationship they're returning to. He's the point. That's the entire thrust. Have you ever read John Piper's book, God is the Gospel?, His entire point of that book is that the point of your salvation is not to be forgiven of sin or to spend time in heaven or or it's it's to have God again. And sin and hell points to something. You lost God and you get him back in the gospel. That's the entire point that, that Zachariah is driving home. In some ways, the Christian walk is is like this balancing on a tightrope. It's it's this balancing between relationship and and responsibility that we have to the Lord, and and far too often we very easily end up falling off into the relationship side, in which case we end up erring on the side of licentiousness. Come on, relax, man. It's all about a relationship. It's not It's not about how I live. It's about a relationship. But then on the other hand, if, if you're not careful, you don't fall off that way. You fall off the other way. You fall into legalism. It's not about relationship. It's about performance. The goal of life is to, to be good enough, and as long as you're flying high and you're have the altitude, you're high enough to look down and everybody else who's not flying quite so high as you, right? <laughs> Feeling pretty good about yourself and then all the time you're looking down you forget to look up and see how much higher God is <laughs> and, and how much more beautiful he is than all of the, the performances that you're doing and you miss the entire point it's a tightrope I mean just consider the greatest commandment for a moment I think we could all say it together you shall love the Lord your God, say it with me, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Deuteronomy six five. What's the first word in that? You shall love. It's a relationship that you have with the Lord. It's a relationship. But that word love is an imperative, it's a command. That relationship is couched within a command. It's a responsibility. You don't have a choice. You must love God. It's a relationship and it's responsibility. How do you how do you demonstrate your love for God? John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? John fourteen twenty one, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Second John six, and this is love that we walk according to His commandments. It's relationship, but it's obedience. It's not one or the other. There, are, th- th- this isn't a, a binary thing. This is this is two perfect dance partners that 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 harmonize together beautifully. They fuel one another. Why do you obey? Because you love the Lord. What's amazing is that Zechariah promises in verse 3 that their return to him will elicit God's return to them. Return to me, it says in verse 3, and I will return to you. And that's God's way of saying, whatever my relationship was with your fathers, how intensely angry I was at them, it doesn't have to mark our relationship going forward. You return to me in repentance and obedience, And that will be matched by my intense loyalty and care for you. This isn't talking about earning back your forgiveness. You can't do that. The Old Testament wholeheartedly affirms that fact. It's not what it's saying. What he's saying is that disobedience and infidelity break relationship. It's like the promise to a child who's disobeying. That, that their return to obedience is not going to make you love them anymore, but it will restore a relationship that's broken by disobedience. It's exactly what he's saying. You return to me, I'll move back to you in restored relationship. Judah has been living under discipline for 70 years. God's saying it's time to bring this to an end. It's time to restore this relationship like the father in Luke 15. You remember the prodigal son? son goes off and just goes nuts in sin. Finally finds himself in the pigsty, you know, this Jewish boy eating with the pigs and finally just comes to himself. It's this picture of repentance. He really sees himself truly for the first time. I've got to get up and I've got to go with my father. And so he starts on this long journey. He's... He's so humiliated. But while he's a long way off, who sees him? Father. And what's the father do? Runs to him. He sees him coming in just abject, just humble humiliation, and he runs to him. You return to me, and I will return to you. It's the path forward for Judah. That should be the path forward for us in the new year, path of renewed, strengthened relationship with the Lord. I, I, I hope that that's your goal for 2020, is by the end of this year you have a stronger, more intimate relationship with the Lord. Uh, that should be all of our path forward. But while we're looking ahead on that path, we've got to start looking behind. That brings us to our second point, looking at the path behind, beginning in verse 4. Zechariah writes, do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. In order to move forward in a renewed relationship, Judah has to deal with the past. It's not to say that They're responsible for what their parents did. Remember verse 2. God was very angry with your fathers. Not with you, but with your fathers. But the plain fact is, is that the people find themselves where they are because of what their fathers did. And the key to moving on, to moving forward in the path ahead, is not to ignore it and to forget the past The key is to remember the past and learn from it. And so, Zechariah says in verse 4, do not be like your fathers. Don't be like them. If you want to avoid their fate, you want to move forward, if you want renewed love for God, you can't do what they did. So what did they do? Well, for one... Verse 4, they were disobedient. Do not be like your fathers, says the Lord of hosts. To whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. Issues in your relationship with God start with sin. They start when we turn away from God, you can't have a relationship with God and a relationship with the world. And the history of Israel is one long example of God's people thinking that they can be in relationship with God and yet at the same time go after the world. I mean, the entire book of Judges is basically a story of what happens when God's people start to act like the world. But... The, the, the Bible is absolutely clear. You can't be friends with God and still pursue the world. Loyalty to one means disloyalty and treachery to the other. You have to choose. You have to choose. Listen to James chapter 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So where is it that all of this stuff that happens, that, that, that affects us relationally in our personal lives, in our relationship with the Lord. What, where does all this come from? He says, "'Is it not that your passions are at war within you? "'You desire and do not have, so you murder. "'You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. "'You do not have because you do not ask. "'You ask and you do not receive "'because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions.'" And all that is summarized in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You cannot have the world and have God. The two are mutually exclusive. They oppose one another. So sin becomes making a choice of loyalty toward the world and disloyalty to God. And that reality is captured in what James says in verse 4, you adulterous people, because there's no better metaphor for sin than adultery because it captures the relational trauma of what sin does. Sin has a traumatic effect on your relationship with God. It disrupts it. To embrace sin is to commit adultery on God with the world, is what J- James is saying. So, it was the first thing they needed to know. They, they needed to look back at the generation that preceded them, their fathers, their forefathers, their grandfathers, and with eyes wide open, see their past for what it was, spiritual adultery that ended with exile. Exile. Your fathers were disobedient. They had turned their backs on God. They had embraced the world. But that was just the start of it because in the end of verse 4, there's something else. They're not just disobedient, but they were obstinate. As the former prophet cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me. So what compounded the evil was that when confronted, Judah wouldn't listen. They stopped their ears up. The prophets had called out repeatedly to them. Their history was filled with pleadings to abandon their sin, turn, turn back, return to God, but they wouldn't do it. They loved their sin too much. Jeremiah testifies to this. Jeremiah had a profound influence on Zechariah, and, and Zechariah ends up borrowing and, and alluding to Jeremiah um, a lot in his, in his uh, prophecy. Jeremiah writes this, chapter 25, verse 3, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah to the son of Ammon, King of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you from his evil ways and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and to your fathers from old and forever Verse 6, do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, then I will do no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own harm. This is the history of Israel. I mean, the, the... The entire book of Deuteronomy is a a series of sermons that Moses gives to a generation who's about to enter the land, who are the children of people who have all died because of their disobedience in the wilderness. So all the way from the beginning of this nation and their national existence coming out of Egypt, they've had a really bad track record (laughs) for not only turning away from the Lord, but then not listening to him when he calls them back. So the call to Judah is to remember. Remember your fathers were disobedient. Remember what they did. And, and then remember how it got compounded because then they'd stopped up their ears and they wouldn't listen and they were hard-hearted. They wouldn't receive correction. They turned their back on God and then they refused to listen to the prophets who tried to call them back. Don't be like that. Keep your loyalty, maintain your love, but if you stumble, receive correction. And boy, do we need that, don't we? how hard it is to be humble in the midst of sin. We want to hide it or we want to pretend like I didn't do anything wrong. It's hard to receive correction. You have to take correction. You have to be hum- humble. You have to be selfless. You have to really see yourself from an angle that you don't want to like taking a selfie and then seeing how ugly you really looked and it's just it's hard that's learning from the past that's looking backwards and 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 seeing what has come before whether or not it's from the examples of the people who have come before you or it's your own experience of times where you've stumbled and you've looked back and you said whatever happened there i've got to learn from this I've got to figure out what led this to, and I've got to make a game plan. And too often we don't make a game plan. We don't prepare ourselves for the next time, because there will be a next time where the circumstances are the same. Got to look behind you. But really the question that comes down to, it's not just that they were disobedient and obstinate, but why wouldn't they listen? They were warned that bad things would happen. Why wouldn't they listen? Well, that starts in verse 5. He answers that. It's because they were skeptical. Your fathers, he says, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, is the Lord of hosts purpose to deal with us for, all, for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. He starts out with... This very simple rhetorical question. Where are your fathers? Just, you know, just checking. Are any of them alive right now? No. What about the prophets who, who, who preached to them? Are they alive now? No. But what is alive? What endures? What actually happened? Exactly what God said was going to happen. His word endured. God is faithful He's faithful to do exactly as he promises to bless, but also to bring discipline. But they didn't believe it. They didn't think it would come. They had um, they had been swindled by a pervasive doctrine that had corrupt that the corrupted priests of their day had peddled. It was a false, pernicious doctrine. That was as enticing to Judah as the prosperity gospel is to folks today. In fact, this was kind of the prosperity gospel of the Old Testament. They had become convinced that as long as the Lord's temple remained in the city, they were indestructible. Nothing's going to touch Jerusalem. We got the temple. It was kind of like the Old Testament version of Israel's like iron dome missile defense system. (laughs) It's just, you know... We're we're good. We're protected here. Nothing can take to, can take us because we have God's temple here. Jeremiah alludes to this in uh, verse, chapter seven, verse three and four. He says, uh, "Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel: Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. They were they were just putting their faith in this superstitious hope that as long as the temple was there. We've, we're secure. And it was total false security. So, when you take Judah's spiritual adultery, and then you add hard hearted obstinance, and then on top of that, you compound it with just this false security in this basically prosperity gospel that nothing's going to touch us no matter what God says will happen, it's not going to happen. We're safe. You got a perfect recipe for disaster. We may think, well, that's ridiculous. Why would they believe that? But honestly, every time we kind of convince ourselves that our salvation and our security is, is some kind of insurance policy to just run amok and do what we want, that's, that we're doing nothing any different than what they did. Salvation is not an insurance policy. It isn't license. So, the path forward for Judah is is hopeful, renewed relationship with the Lord, reinvigorated love for Him. God had promised this relationship to them, but they were bound to relieve history if they only moved forward, but they never stopped to look backwards. Fathers and mothers had gone into exile because of their sin, because of their refusal to listen to the warning cries from God and because they were convinced that the wording cries were just empty. Do not be like your fathers, he says. Learn from them so you can have a future that's different from theirs. Their path does not have to be your path. And that's the lesson that we need here. We need... Going into 2020 and, and looking at the road ahead, don't neglect the past. Don't 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 always have your eyes forward, but look back, see what history has. As we close, turn with me to First Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to listen to Paul's words to the believers in Corinth and really pay special attention to why he's saying what he's saying to them, okay? Beginning in verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. his reader's attention back to Israelite history, just like I'm doing in Zechariah, back to the Exodus and their time in the wilderness. And his his point that he's beginning with is that although Israel had some very spiritually powerful experiences and some deep, deep spiritual privileges, that did not stop them from falling into sin and suffering the consequences for it. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction. Isn't that amazing that he says that? On whom the end of the ages has come. What's Paul's point in all this? Learn from these people. Look back with eyes wide open and Learn. Even though they experienced great spiritual privilege, they fell. They fell into idolatry. They fell into sexual immorality, into grumbling and complaining. And each time they suffered the consequences for it. So what's the principle that Paul is trying to drive at here? And he brings it home in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Spiritual pride and security are dangerous to the Christian life because it causes us to relax, it causes us to presume upon the grace of God and doubt that God will discipline it for us. I mean, isn't it interesting that the same issues that plagued the fathers of Zechariah's audience are the same issues that Paul is bringing up in Israel 1,500 years before. This is the same issues that Paul warns the Corinthians about. All that is to say, we're talking about human life. We're talking about everyday life. And what can happen to them can happen to you. So learn from it. Learn from it. Don't be ignorant of the past. Don't be ignorant of church history. Learn from it. And learn from your own past so that you don't relive history these things took place as examples for us whatever path lies ahead for you in this new year wherever the Lord is taking you wherever you want to go with him in terms of deepening your relationship just take a, take a look back too Okay, take a look back at, at 2019 and ask yourself what I can learn from that from the mistakes I've made from the lies of others let's be Christians with, that, 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 are, that don't have historical amnesia instead let's have wisdom to learn from the past to move forward while we keep looking back let's pray together and then I'm going to ask the musicians to come back up and close us this song thank you Father for your word you for the um, reminder to us, and really the warning that um, that we spiritually are no better than um, those who came before us. We're apt to do the same kinds of things. We're we're weak like them. And though we have your Spirit, we we still we have uh, the draw away, the draw away to loyalties that. Uh, that don't align with you, we are apt as the church in Ephesus to to lose our first love, to help us to remember the past, help us to learn from it, to have our eyes opened wide and, and to just be students of the past that we can grow and we can be people who move forward without reliving the same mistakes we or others have done. Help us to have wisdom in that. We know by your spirit that you enable us to do that. We know because of Paul's words to the Corinthians that, that you're faithful and you won't allow temptation to overtake us to the point that we can't find that escape that you give us. That that's your grace in all of this. That you are faithful. Thank you for that reminder and the reminder that Zechariah had for his people in his day. And we see that it's the same for us 2,300 years later. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. We pray in your son's name. Amen.